Here the Lord Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you for being the good shepherd. You are our shepherd, and so we are not in want. You make us to lie down in green pastures. You lead us beside quiet waters. You restore the soul. You guide us in paths of righteousness for your own namesake. And though we walk through a very dark valley, we do not fear, for you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort. You prepare a table before us in the presence of enemies. You have anointed our heads with oil and our cups overflow. Surely goodness and loving kindness will pursue us all the days of our lives, and we will dwell in your house forever. As we think about the turn of a calendar, O Lord, we think about a new year. And it is a good time for us to recalibrate, to reset our hearts, to reorient our minds. We have many goals. We have jobs and tasks and responsibilities. But the reason we are here on this earth, O Lord, is to be your ambassadors. As Christians, while the world still spins, we are at your behest. We are disciples who are making disciples, who will make disciples until the end of the age. You have guaranteed this by your own blood. And you have guaranteed this great commission, this great process of winning citizens for your own kingdom, of purchasing a people for your own possession. And you have guaranteed this process through means through a good church faithfully upholding your word, through young moms teaching and loving little ones, through dads leading homes and teaching kids. We pray this morning, Lord Jesus, that you would be exalted and that we would have courage, that your plan for us and your plan for this world cannot fail. And we pray that this would be rejuvenating for us, recalibrating for us into this new year. And we ask it in your name. Amen. My goal with you this morning is twofold, to exalt Christ and to give us courage. You think about Jesus' last days on earth in his earthly ministry, on the top of the mountain with those 11 disciples and the great commission he gave them. I will be with you, and you will go from here, and you will make disciples of all the nations. Staggering task for 11 guys on a hilltop in Galilee. That task, of course, comes by their making disciples who would make disciples who would make disciples. 
And on the eve of the year 2024 here in South Lake, Texas, we know one thing is for sure. Jesus' task of getting a people for himself from every tongue and tribe and nation and people is not yet done. You are here. And so the world still spins. The sun rose this morning and we are gathered here to worship Christ, to be equipped again, and to be encouraged to our fundamental task to continue to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the corners of our homes, to workplaces, to classrooms, to our families. Your part in this is to be the church, to be a faithful follower of Christ and an ambassador of the King, And you need to know this morning that Jesus will get his sheep. That is his mission and has the authority to do it. I hope this is an encouragement to you this morning. Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, will not fail to gather all his own. In fact, if you fast forward your Bibles to the scene in Revelation chapter 5, you discover there the throne room and Jesus' exaltation where he is surrounded by a sea of people from every tongue and tribe and nation and people purchased by his blood. Jesus wins. His purposes will not fail. Some implications for us just at the front end as we think about what we'll look at this morning you need to know that your labors for Christ and your carrying his message are not in vain. If you're a mom with rugrats, those little bundles of depravity crawling around your home, sleepless nights, arms full of tasks, not enough energy to get everything done, you need to know your labors are not in vain. Think about the missionaries that this church Sends and has sent to the ends of the earth. And the faithful plodding of those missionaries, one foot in front of the other, to the arduous task that is missions. In difficult places, far away places, they need courage. That their labors are not in vain, and your labors in prayer and in support of them are not in vain. And listen, your service in this church, being members of a body one to another, making this church a faithful church, which is God's vehicle for getting his gospel to the ends of the earth. Your part in that, your labors in it, the behind the scenes service that you do, the way you pray for one another, care for one another, all of that is part of Jesus' means for getting his people and it cannot fail. He will get his sheep. I want you to see the good shepherd and what he says about his own mission and authority here in John chapter 10. Let me give you some background just a little bit. You need to know something about a Middle Eastern sheepfold. I didn't know if you expected to get some sheepology this morning. A sheepfold was a community pen normally built of of a stone wall with a single entrance And sheep were kept in this sheep pen, oftentimes close to one of the buildings of a village. And the sheep pen contained the sheep that belonged to the community. In other words, numbers of flocks inside one pen. 
And those flocks were cared for by different shepherds. The, the shepherd cared for the sheep that belonged to him or belonged to the owner of the sheep. And the shepherd would walk into this community sheepfold and call out his own sheep. They would recognize the shepherd's voice. They would follow the shepherd in and they would follow the shepherd out. And he would lead them where they needed to go. That is the backdrop of the scene we have here in John chapter 10. And I want to set the stage for you just a little bit. Turn the page to the left to John chapter 8. There in a dramatic scene, probably in the temple complex, probably at the festival in wintertime, where the, at night the temple complex would have been set ablaze by the fires, the, the lights in all of the cauldrons lighting up the temple complex, and hear this man in the darkness underneath all of these grand glorious lights of the temple makes an audacious claim. This is a man from the other side of the tracks. This is a man from Nazareth and, and from Galilee. And, and he says this statement, I am the light of the world. This is an audacious claim for any mere human to make. And as we just sung, we understand that Jesus was no mere human. This was God in the flesh. And so this is not an audacious statement. It is just the truth. But he stepped into the darkness of a corrupt religious system. Fraudulent leadership and phony shepherds who were lining their pockets and keeping their power at the expense of the people they were supposed to lead towards God. And God himself steps into their midst and declares, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Look down at verse 19. He tells the religious leaders in his day, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. In verse 43, he says, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Oh, they heard the sound of his voice. They knew the language he was speaking. They could parse the verbs and diagram the sentences, but they did not have ears to hear what he was saying. Why? They could not. Look down at verse 47. He who is of God hears the words of God. What is Jesus saying there? That he was speaking the very words of God and the religious leadership in his day who claimed to know God, did not know God, could not hear God's word when it was right in front of them. For this reason, Jesus says, verse 47, you do not hear them because you are not of God. And then in verse 58, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am that's funny grammar and really good theology. Jesus is declaring his deity here. He predates Abram because he was the maker of Abram. And he is here in their presence. Look at verse 59. They picked up stones to throw at him. Against their own law, they have an attempted on-the-spot murder. Their anger against him in their hearts burned over into murderous intent. Why? He was a threat to their position, their power, their prestige. And he was the truth and the light and the life. I don't know about you, maybe think about the last time that people picked up rocks 
with the intent to throw them at you until you stopped breathing. But here in this scene, after this attempted murder, the very next verse we read, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Jesus exhibits a heart of compassion for the vulnerable, for the needy, for the outcast, for the pariah of society here when any of us would have been on the run. What is this man's story? This is the man blind from birth. And if you can imagine a time before social services, a time before Braille, where blindness was a severely crippling, debilitating condition, and it made of the man a social pariah. He was sidelined and he was suffering such that society said he must be cursed by God. What did he do wrong? Was it him or was it his parents? And notice the disciples asked him, Rabbi, John 9, 2, who sinned this man or his parents that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. What are the works that are about to be displayed? That God himself was in their midst and he had power over things like blindness. But think about the context of John 8. Jesus has just declared himself to be the light of the world, having stepped into darkness and now indicting the spiritual darkness of a fraudulent religious system. And he's about to prove all of that by healing a man who was born blind. This is Jesus' credential. You know the story. Jesus heals the man, and then his parents get questioned, and he gets questioned. And and instead of the religious leadership saying, we've never seen anything like this, we want to be on Jesus' team, they criticize the man who is healed, they criticize his parents, and they are filled to the heart with murderous intent for the one who did the healing. It's a stunning depiction of the hardness of the human heart in the presence of grace and kindness and love of God. Look down at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put the man out and finding him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Do you hear this man's heart has already been affected by the grace of Christ? Jesus said, you have both seen him and he is the one talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Don't miss the significance of that. There is a depth to this man's belief that leads him to worship the one true God in the flesh. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who may see become blind. And those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things. They knew they were being indicted. And they said, we're not blind too, are we? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would have no sin. If you were physically blind like this man and believing, (laughs) but since you say we see, your sin remains. Jesus indicts their pride and their spiritual blindness. This is a corrupt religious system that misses the light when it is right in front of them. John 10, Jesus describing himself as the good shepherd is the explanation for his authority to do what he did in John 9. 
Jesus is going to describe to them what he just did with this blind man. He walked into the sheepfold of Israel. He found one of his own sheep, and he got that sheep out for himself, out from under them. He rescued one of his own. Look down at John chapter 10. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him, because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, I have other sheep, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. This description by Jesus of his role as the great shepherd of the sheep, the good shepherd, the door of the sheep, the one who's not a thief and a robber, but the one who actually lays down his life on behalf of his sheep, is the explanation for why he could walk into the temple complex heal the man born blind, make the declaration that he is the light of the world, and rescue his own out from the phony religious system. This is a shock to his hearers, the religious leadership. Jesus shocked them with two astounding claims. These two claims will form the outline for the message this morning. His first claim is that his mission was far beyond them. And his second claim is that his authority is far above them. Let's look at these two astounding claims. We know this was a shock because of what we read in verse 19. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and he is insane. Their task is from this point to discredit Christ. But how could you discredit somebody who by a mere word heals a man born blind. 
How could you discredit his claims to be the light of the world? Similarly, how would you discredit Jesus' claim to have authority over death and life when in the next chapter he raises his friend Lazarus from the dead? And yet that is exactly what the religious leadership will seek to do. Discredit him and eventually kill him. Let's look first at Jesus' mission. It is far beyond the religious leadership of his day. Verse 16, I have other sheep, he says, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. This shepherd has other sheep. Jesus' mission was far beyond the purview of what the religious leadership thought in their day. Other sheep are Gentiles. That is, they're different from the sheep described in chapter 10, verse 1. The, the sheep in the fold. The, the fold was Israel. And so these other sheep, not of this fold, are Gentiles. And notice the present tense here. Jesus says, I have other sheep. That is remarkable. Jesus already has them. They are his. How many there are, where they are to be found, who they are, Jesus knows. He knows them. They are his, and he will get them. Just as he went and got the man born blind in John 9. And listen to the way the New Testament unfolds this radical paradigm about Gentile repentance and response to the shepherd of Israel. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard the gospel that God was saving Gentiles, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many has been appointed to eternal life, believed. As the gospel went out by the hands of the disciples, Gentiles believed and fulfilled this very thing Jesus said he would do. Acts 18, 9 and 10, the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. I am with you and no one will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Again, a present tense word to describe those who had not yet believed. Jesus there was talking to Paul about the city of Corinth. Jesus had people in that city that needed to hear the gospel and would believe and would be his sheep. So this in John 10 is a prophecy and a promise from Jesus to carry out his mission of salvation to the nations. Look over at John 11, verses 51 and 52. Caiaphas that year was the man serving as high priest, and he was given this prophetic message. Verse 51, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In other words, Jews and Gentiles. Listen, this is great encouragement for us. Most of us in this room, no doubt, are Gentiles who have benefited from this promise of the great shepherd. Not of the fold of Israel, but Jesus said he had sheep and he would get them. You remember Jesus' prayer in John 17 in the upper room with the disciples. He prayed for all who would believe through their testimony. And that comes down all the way to us to this day. And this was the plan of God from the beginning. You remember Genesis chapter 12. God said through Abram would be a blessing to all the nations. Isaiah chapter 2 prophesies that many peoples will come and say, 
Let's go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, that we may walk in his paths. And Isaiah 56, 8 says, Yahweh God who gathers the dispersed of Israel declares, yet others I will gather to them, to those already gathered. And in the context there in Isaiah 56, he's speaking of foreigners and all peoples. And notice verse 16 of John 10. Jesus says he must bring them. Whose task is the great commission, ultimately? It is his. It is Christ's. He is the one who must bring these sheep, and he will do it through the agency of his disciples whom he commissions. In Acts 1.8, he says, Go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to Southlake. This gives great encouragement to the missionary. Great encouragement to the church that Jesus will get his sheep. And he'll get it through his agency, the local church, expanding to the ends of the earth. And notice verse 16, they will hear my voice. There is a certain obedience that comes with this promise. There's no uncertainty here. No contingency. Jesus will seek them out. He will bring them in and they will hear his voice. That is, they will follow. They will obey him. They will surrender under his shepherding care. They'll be his sheep. This verse here is a a great help for us thinking about the condition of our own hearts. Are you a sheep? By definition, a true follower of Jesus is one who hears his voice and follows him. Is that the condition of your heart this morning? Is he your shepherd When he speaks through his word, do you listen and follow? It's possible to be a Christian in name only. It's possible to be a churchgoer. But that doesn't make you a sheep. The sheep hear him and follow him. And notice notice the end of verse 16. They will be unified with Jews who believe. That's not natural. That's not a given in the pages of the New Testament. In fact, the the tension between Jew and Gentile is the backdrop for all of the New Testament. This group who are at odds with one another are now going to be one flock. And notice verse 16, they will become one flock, not a fold. That change in wording is significant. Older English translations and the the Latin translation of the Bible used one word to, to describe both of these two Greek words, and so you ended up with fold twice. I have other sheep not of this fold. They will become one fold with one shepherd. But that is not the original, and our modern translations follow William Tyndale, who got it right. The fold of Israel was a mixed community. There were believers and unbelievers who were united by ethnicity and language and religious ceremony but they weren't united spiritually by faith. The flock was a subset of the fold. The flock belonging to the shepherd were his sheep that heard his voice and knew him, and there were believers in the fold of Israel. But Israel was a mixed community of belief and unbelief, external conformity to religious standards, but not internal heart change for all of them. And notice what Jesus promises here, Jews who believe and Gentiles who believe will be one flock. 
they will be his sheep together. This is the remarkable transition we have in the New Testament. It's a significant change in redemptive history. And many things had to happen for this to take place. Gentiles are referred to in Romans 11 as ingrafted branches, benefiting from the rich root of the olive tree of the promises to Israel. But what defines the flock is spiritual life and spiritual belonging to Christ. And so instead of a centralized place in Jerusalem in a temple, God now has a flock that in individual local churches scatters to the ends of the earth as his people. In Galatians 3, we read, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, all one in Christ. And Colossians 3 describes a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. And this was challenging in the pages of the New Testament. Consider the centralized council in Jerusalem in Acts 15, where they had to sort out, can we really have table fellowship with Gentiles? Do Gentiles need to get circumcised? Remember how difficult it was for Peter to eat a pork chop and to hang out with Cornelius in Acts 10. It was a challenge in all of the synagogues in Gentile territory to figure out what to do with all these people believing in Israel's Messiah who were uncircumcised, who were foreigners. It was hard for Jesus' disciples during his earthly ministry. Feeding the 5,000 in the Jewish population, okay, that makes sense. But going over to Gentile territory and feeding 4,000, the disciples were resistant. They didn't get in line yet with Jesus' mission. And yet the great shepherd of the sheep came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and he came to lay down his life for people from every tongue and tribe and nation and people. He promised he would get them. He promised they would hear his voice, and he would unite them together as one flock. This would be terribly offensive to the Pharisees. Jesus walked into their sheep pen and walked out with one of his own, and now he's explaining to them why he did what he did. His mission is way beyond them. This is an indictment, by the way, of the religious leadership. They were bad shepherds. They failed at Israel's mission to live a God-glorifying life in Israel that would be a testimony to the world of the greatness of God. In fact, Romans 2 says the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of them. They were supposed to lead the nation to be a peculiar people with a purpose. Instead, they lined their pockets for prestige and power. Jesus here is also making a messianic claim by saying he is the good shepherd. He is declaring to be the center of Psalm 23. And the fulfillment of Ezekiel 34, where God prophesies against the bad shepherds of Israel and then says, I will come myself and shepherd them. In fact, later in John 10, Jesus quotes Psalm 82 to declare to him that he is actually God in the flesh addressing their phony religiosity. Jesus shocked the establishment with this astounding claim. His mission was far beyond them. And a second astounding claim that Jesus makes, found in verses 17 and 18, is that his authority was far above them. Notice in verse 17, first of all, this authority is grounded in the approval of the Father. For this reason, the Father loves me. He claims to be the beloved Son of God. 
a unity of purpose with the Father, the approval of the Father, the Father's endorsement of all that He's doing. That what He's doing is a reflection of, a manifestation of the very love of God for sinners. This love of God, this love in God, flowing out through the ministry of Christ, was fundamentally different than the religious leadership Jesus was speaking to. It was proven by his willingness to lay down his life to purchase a people. Look what he says in verse 17. Because I lay down my life. He's not here earning the Father's love by dying. He is manifesting the Father's love and his messianic credential. His identity as God's own son to walk into the sheepfold and get his own sheep. The Pharisees held the empty claim that they were the gatekeepers to God to God's love and to God's ways, that they were approved. And Jesus here, by asserting his sonship to the Father, claims his own authority far beyond theirs, is stepping on the toes of all of their fraudulent claims. He has the authority to be shepherd of God's people. His authority is also revealed in his power over death and life. Notice verse 17, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. According to this verse, you recognize that the purpose of his death was the resurrection. He died so that he could rise again. The resurrection is not an answer to Jesus being killed. It's not like a counterpunch in a boxing match. Oh, you killed me? Watch this, I'll rise from the dead. As a, some sort of reaction or response. No, his death and his resurrection are all under his control. They go together in the rescue plan over which he is totally sovereign. He died so that he could rise again. And think about the imagery of a shepherd, a Middle Eastern shepherd who died in the face of a threat to his sheep would not be a very effective shepherd anymore. A grizzly bear comes to eat the sheep, and the shepherd says, I think what I need to do is die for the sheep. Well, he's the appetizer, and then the sheep are the main course. That would not be successful shepherding. But notice what this text says. Jesus dies for his sheep as their good shepherd. His death was not a martyrdom or a victimhood, nor an appetizer. His death fulfilled all that God demanded by justice and all that God intended by love to actually save his sheep. Jesus died as a substitute, a sin-bearer. When he went to the cross, he was not a hapless victim. He went as a substitute to actually pay the manifold weight of the justice of God to satisfy that justice so that all who would believe in him would have their sins forgiven. And that forgiveness of sin is what qualifies sinners like us to actually know God, to be called his sons and daughters, to be adopted into his family, to be saved, to have eternal life. And the only way that could be done is if Jesus actually paid for our sins against God. A one-for-one -one correspondence between my crimes and God's demands of justice. And Jesus paid it all for his sheep. And then Jesus goes on to say that his authority is unassailed by anyone. 
He says in verse 18, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Think about this. Think of all of the people that made themselves Jesus' enemy that were intent on his death. Think of all the parties that had a hand in his murder. And Jesus was not the victim of any of them. Sure, Judas betrayed him, but what do we know from Scripture? He was the son of perdition selected by Jesus to actually carry it out. The Roman soldiers arrested him, but in John 18, 6, those Roman soldiers were laid flat by simply two words from Jesus. He says, you're looking for me? I am. And he utters that divine name. And they fall down flat, the Roman soldiers. In Caiaphas, in John eleven fifty two, when he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, Caiaphas' intent or hope in that prophecy was that Jesus would be offed so that he could retain his power. Caiaphas got what he wanted, but he also got what God prophesied through him. Jesus escaped from the religious leadership time and time again because it was not yet his time. The Jews didn't want Jesus killed during one of their festivals, but Jesus was in charge of the timetable. Herod and Pilate, according to John 19.11, had no authority except what came from heaven. The insults of the soldiers and the passersby were predictions fulfilled. Think about Matthew 27 and that scene where at the praetorium, the soldiers surround Jesus and they mock him. They strip him of his clothes, put a purple robe on him and a crown and a scepter, and they hail him as king. And then the inscription goes over the cross, king of the Jews. What they intended as mockery, Jesus intended as fulfillment. He is sovereign over all of this. Matthew 27, 54, the centurion who oversaw his death, who likely oversaw hundreds, if not thousands, of, cru of Roman crucifixions, declared, this truly is the Son of God. He's totally in charge. In all the beatings, in all the physical sufferings, Jesus prays for his enemies, ushers a criminal into eternal life, and delivers his earthly mother into the care of his disciple. He is totally in charge. J. Vernon McGee put it well, Jesus was never more kingly than when he went to the cross. And it's not just that Jesus could conquer death, but he has the right to do it. He must do it, and he will. He says, I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. Think about that. Jesus personally had life in himself and he had the authority to disintegrate his inner man from outer man, to decouple his spirit from his body like the decoupling of freight cars on a train. And he had the authority to raise himself from the dead, to glorify his physical body and recouple that resurrected physicality to his spirit. And then to live forever as the God-man, the only mediator between God and man. Messiah, Jesus. And all of this was commanded from the Father. The end of verse 18. If Jesus hasn't caused the Pharisees to go berserk yet, this last statement in verse 18 would put them over the edge. This command I received from my Father. This command of God was higher than their authority. God's approbation, approval, love, endorsement. It was all that Jesus needed. 
He did not need the approval of the self-styled gatekeepers of Israel. He was sent and commissioned by his father, whom the religious leaders did not know, to get his sheep. All of these claims are offensive, that the religious leaders don't know God, that Jesus has the authority to get his people out from under them. There is significance for us in this this morning. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you need to know something about him. And seeing him in this scene, you need to know that Jesus can rescue a blind beggar out of bad religion. If you trace out the the people Jesus saves in his ministry, you, you discover he can save a woman beset with years of physical suffering that excluded her from the life of her society. Jesus rescued those who were possessed by demons. He rescued greedy swindlers like Matthew and Zacchaeus. Jesus even rescued a murderous Pharisee, one of the ones that was part of the establishment. Jesus saved the unlikely, the forgotten, the lowly, and the desperate. He also saved the prosperous and the proud and the self-absorbed. Jesus rescued prostitutes and physicians, a Samaritan woman and a Syrophoenician woman, lowlifes and the high-minded, outcasts and the downcast. Jesus saved the oppressed and some oppressors. That's just a small sampling from the opening chapters of Jesus' mission. That mission which continued not only from his earthly life, but all the way down to our very day, all the way through church history. Many, many more of every sort, every class, every kind of sinners saved by the grace of God, the love of God through this good shepherd. How does missions work? How does the church work? Fundamentally, because Jesus, the good shepherd, gets his sheep. They hear his voice, they listen, and they follow him. This is his mission. How does it work? Through the means of us, his sheep, us, his disciples, telling others about Christ. I don't know about you, I get scared sometimes telling people about Christ. What will they think of me? If I step on their toes, will they listen anymore? Will the message of the gospel about sinners needing forgiveness be so offensive that I'll lose all my friends? What of our missionaries? Going to hard places, doing hard things. Will it work? And the answer to all of that is yes. Take courage, Christian. You're part of this plan that Jesus has to get his own, and it will not fail. Jesus can walk into a community sheep pen of empty religion and get his sheep. He can walk into your home and rescue the children in your home. He can save a spouse who doesn't yet believe. His grace can extend to any sort of sinner in any place on the earth. Our task is to be faithful followers of him, to be used by him to accomplish his mission. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you align us with your mission? Would you enable us by your authority? We pray in this coming year, with all of its uncertainties, 
to grip onto this certain thing that you are about a mission that cannot fail. And we want to be used by you in your accomplishment of it. We pray it for your glory in your great name.